Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream and well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Team House. Uh, I am David Park. This is Jack Murphy. Um, we are here for episode 150 with a very special guest, uh, the former director of counterintelligence at the CIA, uh, Jim Olson. Um, Jim has written a couple of phenomenal books. Um, the one that we'll kind of talk about tonight in addition, well, we'll talk about both of them tonight, but one is To Catch a Spy, and the other one is Fair Play, right? Yes, that's fair, right. Fair Play, about the like the ethical issues in in espionage um we uh we really appreciate you being here with us tonight jim well you're most welcome it's a pleasure to be here there's nothing like better than talking about spying yeah that's and <laughs> and i mean you honestly have a spy versus spy career yes i spent a lot of time on counterintelligence so i would call myself a spy catcher and I found nothing more rewarding in my career than tracking down American traders and bringing them to justice. And I had the opportunity to be involved in several such operations. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about those. We'll talk about some of the uh, some of the bigger uh, operations you've been in, and also just some of the threats that America has faced and is currently facing. Because yes. <clears throat> I, I'll tell you, Stephen King has nothing on you. <laughs> <laughs> this, this book is terrifying. Um, it's terrifying. Yeah, I reacted the same way when I was writing it. Uh, this is scary stuff. Yeah. Because 
our country is really in peril. Uh, we face multiple threats from foreign intelligence services. And I believe that we are not taking that threat seriously enough. We need to do a lot more. So I make the point, quite frankly, openly in my book, that we're losing the counterintelligence war. That's got to change. Yeah. And we will we will definitely talk about some ways that we're losing that as we get into it, because especially like with some things with China, like there, there, there are terrifying implications there, but also Russia and Cuba, which was really surprising to me. I mean, we've had on uh, like uh, Mark Polymeropoulos and some other people have had, you know, who have been affected by their policies. But you talk about what a what a high degree of professionalism they operate with. The Cubans? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they're kind of uh, my uh, nemesis throughout my career. I, I have no love for the Cuban intelligence service. They did a lot of harm to us. They're still very, very actively operating against the United States. So I don't have any reservations at all about ranking them as now the number three threat to our to our country's security in terms of espionage. Yeah, it's fascinating. And we'll get into all that. Um, one of the things we like to do, though, on this show is always start from the very beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about your origin story? How did you grow up and how did that lead you eventually to the CIA? It's a very unlikely story. I was raised in a small town in Iowa. I didn't think at all about international affairs. We joked among ourselves out in Iowa that unless it affected the price of corn, we weren't all that interested. (laughs) But when I went off to college at the University of Iowa to study mathematics and economics, I began to develop a little bit more of a sense of what was going on in the world. It was the height of the Cold War. Uh, I was at uh, university when the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis went on. So that uh, definitely focused us. I was also preparing to become a United States Navy officer. So I was beginning to think of, my ter- of myself in terms of, of national security and national defense. I then took a commission in the Navy when I graduated, served aboard guided missile destroyers and frigates, Really loved it. It kind of reinforced a sense of service to country. But it was still very unformed. Mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly what direction that would take. I did know that I wanted to go back to my home state of Iowa. So I left the Navy after about four years and applied for law school. The University of Iowa was accepted. And that was my my dream at the time. I wanted to get my law degree and practice law in a small county seat town in Iowa, serve my community, find a nice Iowa girl, settle down, raise a family. Not a bad life, I thought. Yeah. That would be a, a good way to, to, to serve my community. But, of course, that was not the way it turned out because in my last year of law school, I received this mysterious phone call out of the blue. Mr. Olson we think we have a career opportunity that might be of interest to you. And that was a CIA call. And they had spotted me. They had found me somehow out there in the middle of Iowa. And that was the beginning of a lengthy process of secret trips to Washington and interviews, meetings in safe houses, eventually leading to an offer to join the CIA's clandestine service. It's kind of funny. I remember distinctly as I was packing up in Iowa to go off to this CIA place, whatever it was, I was determined that I would do it for only a couple of years and then 
I guaranteed myself, Jim, after two or three years, you are going back to Iowa <laughs> and pursuing that original dream we had. Of course, it didn't work out that way because it didn't take long to realize that the CIA was where I belonged. I found it just incredibly fulfilling. And so I ended up spending 31 years there. Uh, what year was that that you were recruited, Jim, that you started the recruitment process? I was recruited process? by the CIA as I was coming out of law school in 69. Okay. So tail end of the <laughs> Vietnam War, getting there, still very much in the Cold War. Very much a Cold War period. Uh, that's our focus. We all thought about that. And when I joined the CIA, I wanted to do my part above all, like most of the other recruits at that time, in fighting Soviet communism, mm -hmm. in protecting our values from the expansionist Soviet regime. So what uh, what was your training like at that time? And then I'd love to hear about your first job, uh, you know, when you finally dip your feet into this world. Yeah, the training was awesome, Jack. You know, it's uh, not much different now than it was back then, but most of it took place down at this undercover base that we call the farm. And down at the farm, we learned the art of intelligence, as we call it. We learned the recruitment cycle. We learned about detecting and defeating surveillance. We learned about all the different spy gadgets that we used. We also went through a fair amount of paramilitary training because it was assumed that many of us would, in fact, have at some point in our career need for um, paramilitary skills. Mm -hmm. Most of us in my class, with only maybe one or two exceptions, were former military officers. So doing the paramilitary training was quite natural for us. And in that era, of course, we expected to be going to Laos, Vietnam, or somewhere else in Southeast Asia. And I remember when I was completing training down at the farm, when headquarters came down, I assumed I'm on my way to Vietnam mm -hmm. or to Laos mm -hmm. because, first of all, I was a former military officer. That was a big plus. I spoke good French already, which would uh, be valuable in Southeast Asia, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia. I was still single. And so I thought, listen, this is a, this is a lock. I'm going to be going to, uh, to uh, Vietnam or Laos, as most of my classmates did. And when the CIA came down and chose me for a different assignment, I was feeling some guilt that I wasn't going to be out doing my, my duty on the front lines as my classmates were. And when I lost classmates in Laos and in Vietnam, that guilt was compounded. The CIA had reasons for wanting to send me where it did, uh, so I don't regret that. I did my duty as best I could. But the kind of people who recruit want to be where the action is. Right. And the current generation of CIA officers wanted to be in Afghanistan. They wanted to be in Iraq. If you don't have that in your resume, you know, you have a little bit of a sense of shirking. Right. And so we uh, had no problem finding volunteers to go out to those uh, hotspots. Right. Now, before you went to the farm, you were an intern for a while, right? Because there was a formative, I thought that in your book you mentioned that there was that this was actually kind of a formative part of your sure. CIA vision. Yeah. Yeah, you've done your homework, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I described that in my, my first book, Fair Play, 
my training out at the farm wasn't going to start for a couple months after I arrived at the CIA. So I needed an interim assignment. And not knowing any better, I took an interim assignment in the counterintelligence staff. And it was really interesting work because my assignment was to update a study that the counterintelligence staff had done on the Rota Capella, which was the, the Russian networks in German-occupied Europe uh, during World War II. And NSA at the time was finally, all those years later, breaking some of the traffic between the center and Moscow and their operatives out in occupied Europe. They were communicating, of course, via clandestine radios. I found it absolutely amazing to read the first person at CIA headquarters as these transcripts came in from NSA, the drama, the tension, the actual patriotism of these Russian spies throughout Europe, putting their lives on the line to communicate intelligence. My job was to incorporate what we were learning about these Russian networks of the Rota Capella into the previous study. And I worked pretty hard on that. And I thought I'd done a pretty good job. And in fact, some of my supervisors did also. So they said, as I was getting ready to leave the counterintelligence staff to start my training down at the farm, Jim, you've done a good job here. And we want you to get the appropriate recognition and so we, we've arranged a meeting, a farewell meeting for you with the man himself. And by the man himself, of course, they met the chief of the counterintelligence staff, the legendary James Jesus Angleton. And on the appointed day, I showed up to see a corridor at CIA headquarters. I went into the outer office. You didn't go into the presence without being briefed on how to comport yourself. So all of his lieutenants are telling me how to behave when I got there. I, I'm getting pretty nervous. Yeah. So finally, they said, okay, go on in. And so they opened the door, and I kind of walked in. They had told me that it would be a dark room, and in fact it was. He had big black curtains. He had just one desk lamp and these owlish eyes looking at, at me, and a big uh, haze of smoke because he was a <laughs> chain smoker, and they had told me, stand at attention in front of his desk. He might not speak, so just launch into your brief on your Rota Capella study. I did that, and I'm going. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I was flowing pretty well. I said, uh, this, this is going pretty well. You cannot fail to be impressed <laughs> by my CI acumen at this very early stage in my career. Not at all. Because at a certain point, he stopped me. He looked me in the eye and he said, Mr. Olson, don't you realize that the Rota Capello was nothing more than a German-controlled deception operation? And that took me back. And I realized then, as arrogant as it might have seemed, that this great mind this counterintelligence genius had really lost touch with reality because that made no sense at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had dug deeply into the road of Capella. I knew it wasn't German controlled. 
but that was his thesis. He saw conspiracies everywhere. He was a double fake expert. And so he rudely dismissed me, said that I had wasted his time. I had wasted the, the CI staff's time by coming up with these totally erroneous conclusions. I go out to the outer office, everybody, how did it go? How did it go? And I'm crushed. And as I'm walking down the corridor afterwards, you know, I honestly was saying to myself, you know, Jim, you had such high hopes for this career. And what a shame, because it has ended before it even started. There's no way you're going to survive that kind of a chewing out by the most powerful man in the CIA. So I said to myself, if by some miracle <laughs> this CIA career survives, which I doubt. I don't know what direction it'll take me, but I know one thing. I will never, ever again go anywhere near counterintelligence, which is pretty ironic, isn't it? Because I ended up being number seven in the chain of counterintelligence chiefs at the CIA later on in my career. And it's interesting because you probably didn't know it at that time, but later you realize what, how much damage Angleton had actually done, not only to the CIA, but, but to the field of counterintelligence in general, right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Dave. That's uh, the legacy of uh, James Jesus Angleton continued for many, many years after he was finally forced out. He discredited counterintelligence and discipline. He made it useless for the 20 years that he was the chief from 1954 to 1974, because he was chasing phantoms. He did not allow us to run any Russian operations because he was too smart to fall into the KGB's machinations. So we had no volunteers. We had no walk-ins. We had no recruitments. We had no Russian operations during those 20 critical years of the Cold War. Yeah. He lost so much. It was a disaster. And it was only after we finally got rid of him and at the end of uh, 1976 that we were able slowly to try to get back into uh, real counterintelligence operations, running operations against the Russians. Yeah. He had destroyed our Russian operational program for all those years. And, uh, and, and I can never forget that. But even after he left... Uh, the reputation of counterintelligence was so tainted. Mm -hmm. It was so out of vogue for anybody to go into counterintelligence that we had trouble attracting good people to go into counterintelligence. And that persisted for many, many years. And, and at the same time, there actually were moles at CIA and other governmental institutions that, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, were, were not being sussed out because of this. That's right. You know, counterintelligence was useless. It was worse than useless because it was preventing us from doing real counterintelligence. Uh, you know, some people said that Angleton could not have harmed us more if he'd been a Russian agent mm -hmm. because he paralyzed us. Mm -hmm. And we were not able to overcome that until much later. I would say that we really were only able to rehabilitate counterintelligence at the CIA in the late uh, 1980s, when we finally began to get our act together and good people went into it. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, just to rewind a little bit. Uh, 
your first job at CIA after the farm, um, you said you didn't get sent to layouts like you expected to. Uh, where, where, where did you end up, Jim? We're not going to talk about that. Okay. Really? You can't? That, that you're sworn to secrecy on that one to this day? We're not going to talk about that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Second yeah. second position after that one. <laughs> second position, okay. After that first one, which we're not talking about, I was selected for what we call the pipeline to go to Moscow. And the pipeline is this lengthy training period, preparation period for going into uh, a deep cover assignment in Moscow. And I can tell you that for all of us in the CIA, that was the dream assignment. We all wanted to go to Moscow. They were the main enemy. That's where the real critical action was. So to be selected for assignment to Moscow was a tremendous honor. And the competition to get there was fierce. So I was uh, very, very grateful that I had had the opportunity to be selected for that assignment. You go through a rigorous selection program. Your spouse also has to qualify. And she has to go through the same kind of scrutiny. You train together as a husband and wife team. And training is very tough. A lot of couples don't make it. Uh, It's stressful beyond words. We put our people who are going to Moscow into what we call the Moscow rules, even in Washington, D.C., which means we put you into an apartment that is bugged. We put you under surveillance. We harass you. We require you to do operational acts under surveillance and get away with it. So we try to recreate as best we can the real environment of uh, Moscow. And, of course, it, depending on your language ability, if you don't already have Russian, which I happen to have had, uh, it's going to be part of your preparation period that you're going to get some addition, intensive uh, Russian language training. My wife had to start from scratch. I already had a pretty good head start. But the CIA perfected my Russian as part of uh, my uh, pipeline experience. Uh, what, what Around what year was this, Jim, where you started the pipeline? I started the pipeline in 76 and came out of the pipeline in 78. Okay. Uh, fully trained and linguistically qualified for the assignment. So just out of curiosity, uh, was it when was she arrested? Were you there about the same time as Marty Peterson? Just after Marty. Okay. Uh, yeah, Marty Peterson is a good friend of mine. Uh, we were involved together in the Trigon operation. I was at the headquarters end of it. Uh, Marty was, of course, the the field operator. We've had Marty on the show before. She's great. Yes, she is terrific. Uh, a real hero of mine. A great personal friend. We did a, a podcast together on the Trigon case. Oh, wow. and, a, and a side note to, to Marty Peterson is, is that her husband, John, mm-hmm. was a good friend and classmate of mine down at the farm. Okay. And John was one of those who, like so many of my classmates, went to Laos mm-hmm. and was killed there. Mm-hmm. So Marty was a CIA widow when she came to us and said that she wanted to honor John's memory by becoming a CIA case officer. And I remember looking at Marty and saying, Marty, you know, we don't do that. You know, <laughs> nothing against you, but you are a woman. And we are not going to 
send women case officers out to a, an assignment like Moscow. And Marty kind of said, well, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. And she sold us on the concept of sending her out to Moscow under deep cover because we knew, all of us, how chauvinistic the KGB was. Right. They did not use women for high-risk operations. They assumed we didn't either. So the concept was, I think, a brilliant one. Let's send Mosk Smarty through the pipeline. Let's teach her Russian. Let's bury her inside the embassy under official cover in Moscow in the hope that the KGB will ignore her. They will dismiss her because she's a woman. And so Marty goes out to Moscow. Her first task for us, of course, is to do what we call probes. And so Marty went on these probes just to test whether or not the KGB was paying any attention to her or not. I was back at headquarters following all of this. We needed to get someone black, free of surveillance, to handle Trigon, Ogorodnik, this great new source we had. And Marty reported back, I'm not getting surveillance. They're not there. You know, I'm doing my, my probes. I'm pushing them. I'm getting provocative. And they're not responding. I am not under surveillance. I am black. And, you know, there was a mindset back at headquarters, one that I regret. I was not part of that group. But there were some senior people back at headquarters said, Marty's reporting no surveillance. But yeah, okay. yeah, She's just not seen it. Uh -huh. So they were still very chauvinistic. And they were dismissing Marty as the professional that she was. But those of us who had worked with Marty, who had participated in her training with her, knew how good she was, how professional was. And so we were able to prevail and she turned out to be a brilliant handler of uh, Trigon. Her tradecraft was impeccable. And, and her so, her cover was she was a secretary, right? right. That was her cover. I think so, yeah. And everyone That's they right. called they called her Party Marty, and that that was they her. called her Party Marty yeah. because yeah. we told her, you know, <laughs> present yourself as kind of a, a frivolous bachelorette out right. there for a time, right. not a serious person. Right. And she pulled it off perfect, perfect. Yeah. Now, as you know, Marty did get ambushed. Yeah. yeah. No, fault, no fault of her own. Trigon was betrayed from within by someone else. And so she was uh, declared persona non grata. When she came back to Washington, she became a trainer. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the pipeline. And so my wife, Meredith, who was oh, wow. in the pipeline at the time, really benefited from Marty's encouragement. Marty as a role model. Of Marty's experience in Moscow, so Meredith was uh, really a great uh, benef beneficiary of uh, of Marty's expertise, and yeah. of course, in the process, we became uh, very close friends. You know, you mentioned that that you know we really suffered against the Russians that from a counterintelligence perspective at that time. 
from what you know about Trigon, and maybe you guys, maybe none of this has ever come to light, but do you feel that if our stance uh, towards Russian, you know, for, towards counterintelligence, more penetrations, that that might have gone differently, that we would have had some awareness of it? I think that's a good point, Dave, because our, our counterintelligence was very, very weak at the time. And I think if it had been better, we might have done a better job of screening someone like Carl Kutcher out or identifying his betrayal earlier on. Mm -hmm. So I don't dismiss that as a possibility as well, where counterintelligence was very, very incompetent at that time. And so people like Kutcher were able to get away with it. You know, what happened after, after we got rid of Angleton beginning in 77 with Trigon, was that we discovered, hey, we're pretty good at this. You know, we, we can recruit Russians. Mm-hmm. And so with Angleton out of the way, the big naysayer, we started building an inventory of assets inside Russia that we could only have dreamed about. Mm-hmm. And it really reinforced our mind that what a loss those mm-hmm. previous 20 years had been because we could have had sources. Right. And we started building all of these recruitments and sending them back to, to Russia, to Moscow. And we had penetrations, sometimes multiple penetrations of, of every real organization in Russia we cared about. KGB, GRU, Ministry of Defense, Foreign Ministry. And those were the glory days of CIA operations in, in Moscow. We call them the, the golden years of Moscow Station operations. And Merth and I were there during those years. And it was pretty exciting. And our country was benefiting from these unprecedented penetrations uh, throughout the uh, Soviet government. Uh, really good stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. And, you know, it's 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 tough to because there's so many things that I want to I want to mention about your book right now. But I don't want to take us out of chronological order because so much of what we discovered about spies in our own country have to do with with a more open stance towards Russian walk-ins, towards recruiting uh, Russians. Um, and, and we'll get to that. Um, like I said, I want to jump ahead. But uh, so, from, so when you were in Russia, what, what was your experience there? Well, my experience was that I was handling assets. I was a case officer. We had all of these Russians who were risking their lives by cooperating secretly with us. And we had to handle them. Many of them wanted to be met uh, personally. So my job was to defeat KGB surveillance. Merritt and I were under constant KGB surveillance. So our job was to be able to evade that surveillance, to break it when necessary. Also use some high-tech methodologies to get free of surveillance and not let the KGB know you were even out of pocket. Mm-hmm. So they think they've got you here, mm-hmm. but you're not there. You use high tech to get out. You go do your operational act, black, and then you slip back in, close the loop, and they never knew you were going. So that was kind of the ultimate. But there were many times when I had to force the issue. We rarely got uh, automatic, any kind of free breaks. Occasionally, there might be a VIP in town, and they would take teams off us and put them on someone else. We couldn't count on that. 
Right. So our job was to be studying our surveillance constantly and looking for ways that we could break free of surveillance to go handle these these Russian agents. Disguise played a big part in that. I don't know if you've read uh, the John Amendez book, uh, The Moscow Rules, but I'm, I'm in that book as someone who used disguise effectively to carry out operations in Moscow. Our t- disguise technology, something that all Americans can be proud of if they can see how good it is. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we used it very, very effectively against the KGB. Yeah, and you're not just talking about throwing on a ball cap. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm talking about uh, very sophisticated, high-tech technology of disguise and, of course, changing your appearance completely. Yeah. And make, in my case, making me look like a Russian, giving me Slavic features. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Good stuff. We're- Good stuff. Were the Russians, were they discreet or were they just like, you're at, you're at the embassy, so, so we're following you and you know we're following you? Their surveillance, I think, uh, by and large, was very professional. Mm-hmm. They took uh, great pride in their work. They did not like to be embarrassed. So we took them very, very seriously. They were not easy to beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, they put a lot of resources on us. They would have large teams devoted to each of us, multiple vehicles. Uh, they changed their their team members, their license plates, their other distinguishing characteristics very frequently to make it hard uh, to get a fix on them. In fact, Mary and I agreed that if we had not had all the training in the states that we did before we went to Moscow, uh, we would never have seen them. They were that good. Mm-hmm. They were very, very professional. So beating them was not that easy. So our job was to be better than they were. And fortunately, we were. Did you ever have uh, any uh, moments in in Russia where, uh, like I remember with Trigon, there was an instance where a case officer met with him personally in a park. Did you ever have meetings like that uh, with assets? Yes, I did. I had human meetings, uh, personal meetings in, in Moscow. Yes. Could you describe, I mean, as far as you're able to, even with if, if you can't identify who they are, you know, what it was like to meet them in person? Yeah, I can't uh, specify which operations they were. Sure. But, uh, for example, hypothetically, it might have been a KGB officer who was cooperating secretly with us, and he wanted to be met uh, in person. He didn't trust dead drops. Mm-hmm. He wanted to make certain that the exchange of materials was secure hand to hand. So our job was to get people black to go out and meet him. And I did that more than once. Uh, and there were other cases where I also was involved in operations where I had to get free of surveillance uh, one way or the other. It was uh, pretty tense stuff yeah. to go out and meet a, KGB officer on the streets. Uh, the consequences of getting caught would have been bad uh, for for him as well as for me. Uh, and I had to be able to count on his professionalism to make certain that he didn't bring surveillance to that meeting himself. So a lot of trust in both directions. I trusted him. He trusted me for the security of that meeting. And he would pass over the, the documents, the, the disks, at that time. And then my job was to get them safely back to the station. Mm, Wow. 
It's amazing. I mean, I can't even imagine working in such a high threat environment. Yeah, I mean, this is like the Super Bowl of espionage, right? Moscow. I think that's accurate. Uh, you were very aware of the consequences of making a mistake. Mm-hmm. Now, the margin for error was pretty close to zero mm-hmm. because human lives were at stake. And we took that very seriously. All of us in Moscow, all of us case officers, knew that these Russians were risking their lives by cooperating with us. And we had not only a professional responsibility, but a moral responsibility to make absolutely certain that nothing that we did would in any way risk their lives. Yeah. You you had a very heavy sense of responsibility. Uh, And we all were very aware of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of pressure. Uh, a lot of stress uh, and you have to, uh, to learn how to live with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and Ashley Trank, I kind of brought that home, you know, in, in terms of the, the danger to, to the actual asset or agent. Sure. You know. Yeah. I asked Marty and Marty was a great example of someone who felt deeply uh, that responsibility that she had for this man. Yeah. She was much more concerned about his welfare, his safety, than she was for her own. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we all felt that way. Yeah. I remember when I was back at headquarters. It was a Saturday morning. I was getting toward the end of the pipeline. I had gone into headquarters to read in on the operations because we could not predict in advance which ones we'd be able to handle or, or be required to handle. It really was a function of who could get free of surveillance. And the cable came in from Moscow, an overnight cable that Trigon had not appeared at the meeting, but Marty had been ambushed. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget that morning, walking into the USSR desk and everybody was there, the entire staff. And it is no exaggeration to say they were all crying. Mm -hmm. They were all crying, not for Marty so much, although we were very concerned about her. But we knew that Marty had diplomatic immunity and she would be expelled and she would eventually be safe back in the United States. Mm -hmm. The emotion was for Trigon. Yeah. Because we knew that if Marty had been ambushed, that they had Trigon. Right. That they knew when and where that dead drop was to take place. Otherwise, they could not have set up the ambush. Right. And that's where we were so deeply affected by losing this man who had done such valiant service for our country. Yeah. And to know what his fate had been in the hands of the KGB. And folks who are watching tonight, if you're interested, our interview with Marty Peterson is episode 103. I highly, highly recommend that everyone go take a look at it. And Trigon, of course, um, bit down on a suicide pill that the CIA yes, had provided. Yeah, the pen cap. When he was, he was yeah. compromised. Um, again, not, not because it was Marty's fault, but there was, I, I mean, Jim, you're the, you're the expert here. Do you want to say uh, how that came about? But Trigon knew what he was uh, going to face if the KGB captured him. Mm-hmm. He knew that he would be interrogated. He knew he would be tortured. He knew he would have to reveal everything that he had done on our behalf. 
mm-hmm. under torture and negate a lot of its value. He didn't want that. But he also knew that he would then be taken to the basement of Lubyanka, put on his knees, and a bullet fired through the back of his head. And to preclude that from happening, he pleaded with us, give me an L, give me a lethal device, so that if I see the KGB closing in on me, I can avoid all of that by committing suicide. And it was agreed that he would have his L in a pin. Mm-hmm. And when he was captured by the KGB and he was being interrogated, he said, I will confess. I will write out a confession. I will tell you everything that I did. Could you hand me my pin from my coat jacket? And the KGB, not suspecting anything, and happy that he was about to confess everything, handed him his pen. He bit off the tip, and he was instantly dead because the poison acted instantaneously. And the KGB was, of course, furious. And we know that all future spies who were arrested in Moscow were instantly immobilized. Their heads were held firmly to be prevented from uh, using an L themselves. Yeah, I, Marty had mentioned it when, like, that the, she had a pen or something on her, and they, like, went, they went apeshit <laughs> trying to get it away from her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when, yeah. they, when they were interrogating Marty, they, <laughs> they put everything out on the table that she had in her possession, including a pen. They were afraid to touch it. Yeah. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't know what the heck that pen was. <laughs> it was not, in fact, an L. It was not a weapon. Yeah. But uh, they were very, very wary. So, um, so Jim, ahead. after Russia, like, how did your Russia tour wind end up? If there was anything else notable that you can or want to talk about from that time, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. Or we can move to the next phase. No, there are a couple of highlights uh, that you, now that you bring them up, Dave, that I would like to Please. point out about my time in Moscow. One was the handling and exfiltration, successful exfiltration of uh, Victor Shamoff, and I had a part in that. I met Shamoff on the streets of Moscow and was involved in the exfiltration. It's the first time we'd ever successfully exfiltrated someone from inside the Soviet Union. And uh, this case was particularly significant because we not only got Shamoff out safely, we also got out his wife and their five-year-old daughter. So that uh-huh. was uh, quite an operation, quite an operational feat, if I can say so. We were very, very proud of that. Another operation that I would uh, want to highlight would be the cable tapping operation uh, that I was personally involved in. Uh, the Russians had a secret underground cable system for their top secret communications uh, underneath Moscow. And I trained on... that uh, mock-up in the United States before I went to Moscow. I was selected as a candidate to carry out the operation when I got to Moscow. And in fact, I was chosen to be the first person to go down the manhole. I I visited the site twice. The second time went down the manhole and did what I was trained to do. And that was a pretty uh, dicey operation. I don't want to over-dramatize it, but the fact is, if I'd been caught down that hole, yeah, uh, there's a good chance I wouldn't have come back. Right, right. 
So yeah, was this like is. like a like a induction tap or something uh, with a tape recorder? Uh, yeah, good good for you. Yeah, it was induction uh, tap, which was breakthrough technology at the time. Right. And uh, it first became publicly known in the Sontag and Drew book on uh, our uh, tapping of undersea cables, underwater sea yeah. cables. You know, in their book Blind Man's Bluff, we were unhappy that that came out. But yeah, this was ingenious technology because we did not have to penetrate the protective core of the cable, uh, which would have been uh, detectable. So that was a remarkable technology. I, I was given the uh, Intelligence Medal of Merit for that operation, but this is not false modesty. I didn't think I deserved it. I just did what I was trained to do. That's incredible. The people who deserved <laughs> the medals were the engineers. Yeah, the S&T. The technicians, the people who had the audacity <laughs> and the creativity even to conceive of an operation like that. And think about it from a technical standpoint. How do you get that much data out of a hole underneath Moscow, safely back to CIA headquarters without being picked up by Russian SIGINT? It was a remarkable achievement. Well, that, that was going to be my next question, Jim, because, I mean, the undersea cables initially, anyway, they were analog cassettes that they that yes. they recorded. The, is that what you were installing in this case? Uh, don't want to go there. <laughs> okay. But, I, I mean, I, that... just, I, can confirm, I can confirm that it was analog technology. You sure. did not have break the skin of the cable yeah. to be able to read the uh, communications okay. and there were multiple cables down there and so we uh we tapped more than one of them because i mean the, i guess the, the the point i was getting to is that you know obviously the spool runs out of tape eventually yeah and somebody has to go back down there and, like replace them that <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's one thing when you're diving it's a totally different thing when you're like walking through the streets of moscow yeah and, yeah and it's another thing having solid state hard drives today yeah uh, versus what you guys had in the 1970s yeah well the front end of that operation was pretty impressive wasn't it because uh from our satellites we watched that cable line being built oh wow we watched, <laughs> we watched the trenching we watched the cable spools being rolled up we saw them man building the manhole covers at certain intervals yeah. So we were able to build a precise mock-up because we knew exactly from our satellite imaging what that looked like. So when I went out to the manhole cover, it was no mystery to me. I knew exactly what I was going to find when I got there. Yeah. It's uh, pretty that's, remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. My hats are off uh, to our engineers. Uh, that's amazing. Um Anything else? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are tons of notable things in, in Moscow, but are there any other highlights that you'd like to, to pick out for us? Or do you want to? Yeah, I, I, think, I think, Dave, the overall highlight from that period in Moscow was the intelligence that the CIA was providing to our policymakers back in Washington yeah. because of all these sources that we had. Uh, it was beyond our wildest dreams that we would ever be able to have that kind of access into the Kremlin, into the inner circles of the KGB and the GRU and the defense ministry. Yeah. Uh, we, we served our country quite admirably during those years uh, at a critical time in the cold war. Right. And in getting intelligence uh, to the president and to other senior policymakers. That's something 
all of us in the CI, I think we're rightfully proud of. Well, yeah. And for people who weren't, uh, or who maybe a little bit younger, like I was, you know, in, in, uh, you know, elementary and junior high at that time. And I mean, when you talk about the cold war, you like, we're talking about an existential threat when we would do bomb drills, waiting for the Russian nukes to hit, you know, all the kids in the school would go down to the shelter during one of these drills. That was, that was sort of, you know, the existential threat that the Soviet Union posed at that point in time. Yeah, we all knew that. That's why we signed up in the first place. It right. was an existential threat. And we know, knew that they had the power to destroy as many times over. It wasn't a game. Right. It was a life and death. And uh, we were on the front lines of that, uh, that historic battle. That's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, so D, I think it's trying to hit us up uh, that this is the time where we're supposed to plug our Patreon uh, below. If you guys want to support the stream, we really appreciate it. There's a link right below. Um, you can get access to bonus segments and clips, and uh, you can get uh, the show ad free uh, if you'd like to listen. And to it, and so. you can buy us some Lafroy or you know keep us in stock. Whatever, whatever you know. So back back to our our guest, Jim. Uh, Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's. Uh, what, what what's up next? Uh, yeah, Jim, you like? I'm I'm sorry. I'm just going to say that because we're not because this is so much about counterintelligence, and we want to know about you. I'm going to rely on like I have a lot of your personal anecdotes uh, <laughs> from the book, but yeah, I'm going to rely on you to sort of help us drive along through your story. Yeah. Oh, guys, get this. I'm telling you, read this book. You will not. It, it will open your eyes. It. I mean. It'll probably keep you up at night. It'll make you a little paranoid. Uh-huh. Um, but it is a phenomenal read, a compelling. Uh, I can't recommend it high enough. Check it out. Uh, and then if you were interested in the ethics of spying, it's in the description. Uh, how to Catch a Spy. Uh, it's in the description. And just fair play. Copy. Yeah, fair play. The Moral Dilemma of Spying. Yeah. Um, so, so what was the next assignment then, Jim, after uh, after Moscow? I mean, you came back. It sounds like you were highly successful there, proved that you could operate as a spy in denied territory. I mean, so you had you had your bona fides at, at this point. Yes. And I wanted to continue working against the Soviet Union. 
And one of the best places to do that throughout the Cold War was Vienna. A lot of people don't realize it, but the major venues of Cold War espionage were Vienna and Berlin. So I applied for a position as the chief of Soviet operations in our station in Vienna and was selected for that assignment. So Meredith and I made a quick trip back to Washington to learn German. And we were force fed in German because we didn't have any German up to that point. And then I went out to uh, Vienna. We loved Vienna because it was where the East met the West. It was a real battleground. We were nose to nose with the KGB on the streets of Vienna. All major intelligence services in the world were there. So it was a very, very exciting, uh, lively place to be. Uh, Vienna was where the action was. So our job was to monitor what the Russians were doing in Vienna. The Russians were meeting a large number of their American assets in Vienna. They felt safe there. During their occupation after World War II in Vienna, they had built an infrastructure. So they had a lot of resources there, which they used uh, much later. And the Austrians were neutral. Their counterintelligence was frankly not well developed. So we all felt very comfortable working there. In fact, the Austrians kind of were happy to look the other way. If we didn't embarrass them too much, they were content to let us go out on the streets of Vienna and do our thing. And we did. We were all over the streets of Vienna. So I love being in, uh, in Vienna working against the, uh, the Russians. And in fact, when our assignment there was up, Meredith and I were sent back to Washington. I became a chief of internal operations, Soviet operations, East European operations for the CIA back at headquarters, which was a good job. And I did that for a while. And then I remember one day I'm sitting at my desk at Langley and I get a call from the deputy director for operations, the chief of the CIA clandestine service, a crusty old pro. Uh, he called me up, and, uh, very gruff. Jim, get up here. Okay, I'm on my way. Shop to the seventh floor. So I walk in, and without any introduction, he said, Jim, we're sending you to Vienna. I thought he'd misspoken because I had just come back from Vienna. Uh, but he wanted me to go back to Vienna to build a counterintelligence program there. We didn't really have one. And he was tired of seeing that the Russians were meeting all of these Americans, all of the double agents, all of uh, the cases that were compromised in Vienna. They had a field day. They owned Vienna. And his mandate to me was go and take possession of Vienna. And that meant to build a counterintelligence capability on a scale that we'd never done it before. And he told me, this is going to cost a lot of money. And I'm aware of that. So he said, Jim, how much do you want? And I'm thinking quickly. I knew Vienna. I knew what the real estate there. I knew what uh, the cost would be. It's an expensive city. So I gave him a number that I thought was outrageous, completely out of bounds. Uh, he didn't bat an eye. He said, you got it. And when you need more, come and see me. So that's how it started. And my job was to build a team and to go out and to take it to the Russians 
and uh, we did. And it was uh, pretty, uh, pretty momentous for us to go and to beat the Russians on what they had considered uh, their private territory for, for many, many years. Who, who was we, we did such a good job, I think, in, uh, in counterintelligence in Vienna that it was almost inevitable that my next assignment was going to be back at headquarters as uh, chief of counterintelligence. Who, who I was... wanted to go elsewhere. I had always dreamed of uh, an exotic African assignment. I was kind of penciled in for Kinshasa, and we were running our war in Angola out of Kinshasa. That would have been a great assignment. Um, I also was being considered for Tel Aviv, which I thought would be a, a great place to be. So I was excited about those two options. Uh, but headquarters in its wisdom said, nope, Jim, you're coming back and you're going to you're going to build a, a counterintelligence center uh, with Ted Price's help, uh, Ted Price's leadership back at headquarters. And that's what I did. Go ahead, I, I was just going to ask, who was the DDO, the gruff, gruff, salty DDO that called you in? I mean, he must be out by now. Claire George. Oh, Claire George. Okay. Claire George. Yeah. One of the old barons, <laughs> one of the cowboys, we called him. Uh, a great character, a great operator, and someone I admired greatly. Claire and his ilk would have trouble in the CIA or in the United States government today because <laughs> they were. <laughs> anything but politically correct. <laughs> you, you, um, you know, you had some, a couple of the stories from Vienna, or a couple of the cases were your personal experiences in Vienna. Because for people who don't know, like a vast majority of this book is just about the counterintelligence that's waged against us. It's about your 10 commandments of counterintelligence. Um, it's a number of case studies, but there are a couple. Um, can you tell us um, a little bit about, um, about the young Marine, uh, Sergeant Clayton Lone Tree, who approached you in Vienna. I'll be happy to. Clayton Lone Tree was one of the Marine security guards at our embassy. They do a wonderful job. He had previously served in Moscow as a Marine security guard. Meredith and I were at the ambassador's Christmas party in Vienna in December of 1986. And all the embassy staff had been invited. It was a great party. The ambassador was Ronald Lauder, the son of Estee Lauder, the cosmetics magnet, very wealthy people. Uh, Ron and his, his wife entertained lavishly. A great party, having a wonderful time. Meredith and I were really enjoying ourselves. But toward the end of the evening, as I'm in this one conversation group, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that this young man, whom I recognized as one of our Marine security guards, was watching me intently. And as I moved on my way toward the next conversational group, he came over and intercepted me. He was visibly shaking. I thought he was having some kind of a breakdown, some kind of an episode. So I took him around the corner out of sight of the rest of the party. And finally, he was able to tell me that he knew who I was. In other words, he was telling me that he knew I was the CIA undercover chief of station in Vienna. And that got my attention because he shouldn't have known that. Mm -hmm. When he said, they told me who you are, that could only mean the KGB. 
So I knew we had a problem. And I arranged to meet with him the next day outside the embassy. And Clayton Lone Tree began to tell us his story. Uh, It didn't take long to get to the bottom of it. When he was in Moscow, he was seduced by a, what we call a swallow, a KGB seduction specialist, young women who were trained to lure Americans into unauthorized sexual relationships so that they can compromise them and then put pressure on them. And Clayton Lone Tree was an easy mark. He was a Native American. He had never had a successful, emotionally satisfying relationship with a woman. And so when Violetta, as her name was, working as a secretary in the U.S. Embassy, began to flirt with him, he was, he was a goner. And she eventually seduced him. And once they became intimate, uh, she introduced him to her uncle, Sasha, uh, a KGB officer, obviously, who closed the deal. And Lone Tree was in over his head. He wanted to do what he could for Violetta by cooperating. And so he started working with the KGB in Moscow. He then was transferred to Vienna as his next assignment. I think the KGB probably asked him to request Vienna because Vienna was a great uh, post for them to have a, a spy in. And a Marine can do a lot of damage. They have access to all of our spaces. And Lone Tree was under a lot of pressure. The KGB was using a very heavy hand against him in Vienna. They wanted to do more and more. They wanted physical access to our embassy. They wanted to get into the ambassador's office, into the CIA spaces, into the communication center. And Lone Tree was going to be the way to do that. U.S. Marines would sometimes be the only American in the building at night. So he could have let in a whole KGB technical team. Hmm. So the worst case was very, very uh, damaging. Uh, So we talked to him. We couldn't trust him to be telling us the whole truth. He told us that he'd never gotten that far. He came to me because he wanted out. Mm. He was scared. Uh, He wanted to work with us as a double agent. In other words, he wanted to continue meeting with the KGB in Vienna But from now on, of course, under our control. And ordinarily, I would have found that very, very attractive. As it's clear from what I wrote in To Catch a Spy, I love double agent operations. And I would have done it here, except that Clayton Lone Tree was emotionally fragile. It was apparent to us from the beginning that he was still very emotionally attached to Violetta. Mm -hmm. So we would never have the control that we would need for successful double agent operation. And uh, secondly, he was not equipped to carry off the fiction of being cooperative with the KGB. Uh, He wouldn't be enough of an actor Mm -hmm. uh, to do that convincingly. So we had to rule that out. And once we ruled out a double agent role for him, we had no alternative but to turn him over to the a Naval Investigative Service, now called NCIS, for arrest and prosecution. I testified at his court-martial in Quantico, 
Uh, he's the only Marine ever to have been charged with espionage, treason. So the Marine Corps threw the book at him, 30 years. And we then debriefed him fully. And it turned out that he had not done significant damage. He had not, they had not gotten that far with him. He was very repentant about what he had done. So I felt that uh, he deserved some leniency and uh, we did end up petitioning the court. So he only spent about uh, nine years in prison uh, for what he had done. So the, short, the sentence was uh, reduced significantly. Um, Clayton Longtree, when he got out, you know what the first thing he did? He sent a wedding proposal to Violetta. <laughs> he refused <laughs> oh, to believe oh, that she set him up, uh, which we knew, of course, that she had done. Right. And Violetta uh, declined the wedding proposal. She had moved on. Right. <laughs> but Clayton was uh, was heartbroken uh, because he, he truly believed that what they had was real. So that was quite a, a potentially damaging case. Uh, but in uh, reality was not nearly as bad as it might have been. Um, and then the other case I think that you mentioned in Vienna, uh, that you received a call from Ring Guard about a walk-in, and it was a Latino-looking gentleman uh, sitting in the wedding area with a young, a young woman who you thought might be his daughter. Yes. Yes, that's right, Dave. Uh, I was at home on the weekend, and of course we'd arrange with the Marine Guards who were on duty over the weekend that if a walk-in showed up, they should call one of us, and they had a parole that they would use. So I got a call at home on that uh, weekend afternoon and the, from the Marine Guard. He used the, the parole to indicate that there was a walk-in. I drove into the embassy, and uh, as I'm walking past the entrance up toward the Marine desk, I noticed this Latino-looking gentleman with a girl, a young lady, and, and that's right. I thought she was probably his daughter. It's about the age that uh, made sense to me. I go up to the Marine. I say, Corporal, what do we have here? He handed me two official Cuban passports. I go down to the uh, vestibule to speak to this, this uh, Cuban, and it turns out that this was not his daughter, this was his teenage mistress. Uh, he had been the DGI, the Cuban intelligence head of station, the resident in Prague. Uh, he and his girlfriend were on the run. They had left Prague. They'd driven down to Vienna. And they wanted a life together in the United States. Uh, the defector's name was Aspiaga. And he uh, had left a wife and family behind in Prague. They weren't part of the deal. I didn't speak Spanish at that time. Didn't learn Spanish until later. So we we're having trouble communicating. Uh, the only language we had in common was Russian. And his Russian was not very good. Uh, so he was having trouble uh, making himself understood. He was getting frustrated. So finally he motioned for me to come closer to him. And he whispered in my ear the names of several undercover CIA officers who had served in Havana. Names I knew. So I realized this person is probably bona fide. Yeah. He's probably what he claims to be, a senior DGI officer. So we 
put him in a safe house. I called in one of my Spanish-speaking officers, and we had him on a plane with his girlfriend to the United States the next day. Aspiaga turned out to be an incredible source for us. The first real inside look that we'd ever had of the Cuban DGI. And the look that he gave us was a shock because he told us some things that we hadn't known before. He told us that the former CIA case officer, Philip Agee, had been working for the Cubans for many years and had been paid over a million dollars. But he also told us, and this was shattering to me and to all of us, that all 38 of the recruitments that we CIA thought we'd made of Cubans, including on island, were controlled by the DGI. They were all doubles. They owned us. They had duped us. They had beaten us. And that's something that sticks on my goal to this day, that we were so gullible, that our counterintelligence was so weak that they could do that to us. It was... Uh, one of the worst days in my CIA career when we heard that the, the Cubans had carried that off against us. It's also interesting because you make the point, like you said earlier, that, that like people don't want CIA around. And it's, it's for reasons like that, because when they're successful, everybody else looks bad. You know, yeah. that, that all these recruitments that people had gotten awards for probably, gotten yeah. promotions for yeah. probably, they were all fake. They're all fake recruitments. Yeah. That's a good point, Dave, and one that I think accounts for why we had uh, allowed uh, the Cubans to run all these doubles against us. Counterintelligence, as I said, was inexcusably weak during those years. The components did their own so-called counterintelligence, and they wanted these operations to be good because people had made their careers out of recruiting Cubans, people in the Latin American division. And they didn't want any counterintelligence people coming to them and saying, you know, we're looking into that case and there are some problems with it. You know, first of all, there's not much production. Secondly, the polygraph really had some issues associated with it. Mm -hmm. Also, the vibes just don't look good in this case. Uh, all those warning signals, which were significant, were disregarded because they wanted those cases to be good. Right. They right. wanted to have, they wanted to be able to go up to the seventh floor and tell CIA management, we've got 38 Asians that were running against the Cubans. Right. Uh, so uh, that's, that was a major contributor. When we set up the counterintelligence center, we told the components, hey, listen, this is a new era of counterintelligence. And you're not going to police yourselves. We're going to send people who are working for us in the counterintelligence center who are objective, who aren't beholden to you to go in and look at your cases. Oh, no, you're not. No, you're not. We don't want that kind of outside scrutiny. Uh, compartmentation reasons. You don't know our culture. Well, the fact is they didn't want anybody looking over their shoulders. Yeah. And when we got in, when we got into those area divisions, had to overcome a lot of resistance because the old hands, the people who ran these area divisions didn't want independent CI. Right. They want to continue doing it themselves. Right. Uh, we had to break down that resistance. I had to go to the seventh floor and tell the seventh floor, listen, we want to do oversight. We want to do independent counterintelligence scrutiny of the operations in this division. 
I won't name the division, but there were more than one who were resisting us, trying to stiff arm us, not letting us get access to their cases. Uh, we can't do our job unless we overrule them. Didn't make me very popular, but uh, the seventh floor, including the director, said, okay, uh, you've got it. You've got the access you need. And if you have any more trouble with them, let me know. So we got into the cases. And what did we find? Junk. Worthless cases that they were running just for the sake of running operations. So we had to weed all that out. Mm -hmm. We had to get rid of the junk. We found other cases that were doubled against us. Mm -hmm. It was a nightmare. But we cleaned house. And it was long overdue. Uh, it's like the original form of catfishing. It's it, it's so good. It looks so good that you just want it to be true and you ignore that, all. That, and the, the professional incentive is yeah. to rack up numbers, yeah. right? We're running all yeah. these assets. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, what was overlooked was they weren't producing anything. Mm. Right. We weren't getting any real intelligence. Well, we, we were, were getting junk. And not only that. Oh, I'm, I was in, fact, in the case of the Cubans, anything that was Cuban was a valid target. You know, you could be a circus performer. You could be a, a hotel clerk. Didn't make any difference. If you yeah. were Cuban, you were de determined to be a valid target. Right. And so they, they recruited junk, worthless people with no access. Right. They, they allowed themselves to be beguiled into the belief that, as these people were trained to do by the DGI, okay, when you're dangling yourself, let them think that you are on the verge of getting something that's worthwhile. Right. You, you got a neighbor who works in the Cuban military who's right. talking too much, or right. you're in line for a job in this ministry. And of course, it never panned out. Right. We never got any intelligence from her. So. Right. Disgraceful. Uh, something that any good counterintelligence officer should be ashamed of. And I was ashamed of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and there are a lot of personal, like, I mean, there's like a lot of personal reflection insight in this too. Can you tell us, because we've talked about the Russians, can you tell us a little bit about the Chinese? And I don't know how much they were in that sphere because we've heard about the Russians and the Cubans. Were the Chinese very active during that period of time? They were, but they weren't our major threat at that time. Of course, it was all Russia uh, throughout most of the Cold War. China didn't really emerge as a major espionage threat to the United States until later. I would say beginning in the early 1990s, we recognize we have a problem. The Chinese are very aggressive. They are very good. They are infiltrating uh, the United States. They are stealing our technology. They're hacking into our databases. So very uh, quickly, we came to realize we got a major new threat on our hands. Uh, the Cuban MSS, or the Cuban or the uh, Chinese MSS and the Chinese uh, PLA, they're formidable adversaries and they're flooding resources in the United States. So I would say by the, the end of the 1990s, China had emerged as our number one uh, national security threat. Uh, what they were doing was several magnitudes greater than what the Russians were doing. The Russians did not go away. Their level of espionage against the United States stayed very high. Putin was obsessed with the United States. But we had uh, good reason to believe that what the Chinese were doing was unprecedented. It was massive. It was pervasive. 
their number one target was to get our technology, particularly military technology, but not exclusively. And I, I came to realize uh, before I left active duty that uh, China is now the number one national security threat to the United States. And that has been compounded uh, over and over again uh, since I left. In my courses at the uh, Bush School, my intelligence classes, I tell our students that China is going to loom very large in their counterintelligence careers because they are the name of the game. They are the threat. I make the point in the book that if I could start my CIA career all over again, and I'd love to, I would try to get into the CIA's China program. I would learn Mandarin. And I would become a China counterintelligence specialist because that's the future. That's the future. What they're doing is outrageous. And we need to do a lot more to stop them. I was wondering, Jim, as a, as a counterintelligence professional, did you ever experience any uh, frustration in trying to approach the problem of Chinese espionage? Because at the time, in the 1990s particularly, uh, we were trying to integrate China into the global economy. We were setting up all these trade arrangements. Um, there was even you know, some rose-colored glasses on with a lot of people who thought that China would democratize eventually. Um, and I, I have read that some of the espionage cases were kind of ignored, swept under the rug. Um, we, it wasn't something we wanted to deal with at that time. And I was wondering if you encountered any of that. Well, I encountered that a lot. And that was a problem, Jack. I think there's uh, still a bit of a problem in that area. The Chinese have been given a pass far too often. We have not held them accountable enough for what they're doing. When we catch them, uh, slap on the wrist maybe. I mean, we do have some prosecutions, but it is small compared to the enormity of what they're doing here. There are an awful lot of people in the United States government who don't want to embarrass the Chinese. Mm -hmm. They don't want to call them out. Uh, they don't want to uh, change the, the the pattern of business that we have with them. Mm -hmm. And you've seen it when when um, policymakers have proposed tariffs on Chinese products. There's a hue and cry. Can't do that. It's going to raise the price. Mm -hmm. Americans like those cheap Chinese products coming in. They own so much of our debt. You know, if we irritate the Chinese, uh, they could call in some of that debt, and that could be disastrous. So we're not uh, holding them nearly accountable enough for the enormity of what they're doing. Uh, and I remember during the, uh, the Olympics and uh, in Beijing, one of the big races, one of the long distance races was being held in uh, Tiananmen Square. And NBC is broadcasting this. Merit and I are watching all this. And we say to ourselves, there's no way that NBC cannot mission what happened to Tiananmen Square in 1989? Right. And they're talking about uh, the fact that we are participating in the Olympics from that location. Not a word. You know, you don't want to embarrass the Chinese. Uh, nonsense. You know, and I found it uh, very disturbing that that the Justice Department canceled what was called the China Initiative. Yeah. China Initiative was established to put more focus on Chinese espionage, particularly their theft or technology. And I was involved in a couple of cases as an expert witness where that was paying off, where the additional attention was leading to some arrests and prosecutions. I don't know what we're thinking when we 
back off from something like that, which was paying dividends. And of course, the excuse that was given was is that the China Initiative was focusing heavily on ethnic Chinese, uh, Chinese Americans. And that's true to some extent, and we don't want to racially profile, but as counterintelligence professionals, whether in the CIA or the FBI, we would be remiss if we ignored the reality of how they target. They go after ethnic Chinese. Right. That's, that's their target of preference, finding Chinese Americans who are in key positions who might have some residual affinity for things China, some affection for Mother China. They share a language. They might even have relatives still living back in China. So that makes it a very attractive target. The Chinese don't miss that opportunity. Right. It's by no means exclusive. Uh, we've seen the Chinese intelligence services get increasingly brazen, and they're going after non-ethnic Chinese now more and more as well. But all things considered, when they have an option, they're going to target ethnic Chinese uh, first and foremost. And in a lot of cases, because you like you like with the Thousand Talents program. Like it is their plan to get these people over here, get them into school, get them into advanced technical fields, and feel them through. And and basically, I mean, basically, if they have family back in China, they're as good uh, as an agent. They the, they don't have a choice. They're it's, they're yeah. going to do it. Well, bingo, yeah, or Dave, you're right on with that. That's a that's a mechanism that the Chinese have discovered and have been exploiting. Uh, for years, if they send over a bright young Chinese student to the United States, it's generally going to be in engineering, probably something with military application. That, that student gets uh, his or her master's degree in electrical engineering or a computer science or aeronautical engineering, or whatever it is. If that person can get sponsorship from an American high-tech company, which isn't hard to do because they're all short in hiring engineers. If they can get sponsorship, they get a green card. They get PRA status. And five years of PRA status entitles them to citizenship. And five years of citizenship, they are eligible for code word, top secret U.S. government security clearances. Mm -hmm. So that is something that requires patience. But any intelligence service worthy of the name would identify that as a channel mm -hmm. to get their people in place in U.S. high technology companies with U.S. citizenship and clearances or in the government directly or in the national labs. It's a goldmine for and, an intelligence service, and, and they certainly don't ignore that. And, and Jim, I... This isn't just this. This is what was truly terrifying about your book, is you know the Russian espionage was one thing, the Cuban espionage is another thing, but but your first section on China, where they are our number one competitor, and and Russia is a distant second, and the amount of technology, basically, if we've created in the United States military technology, in, information technology, whatever, if we've created it, they have it that we are yeah. no longer ahead of them in any kind of arms race. They have basically everything we do, and it continues to walk out the door on a regular basis. Yeah. That's exactly right, Dave. In fact, there's not a significant piece of Chinese military technology 
that is not based completely or heavily on stolen American technology. They discovered a long time ago that it's a lot cheaper and a lot faster for them to steal Western technology and specifically American technology than to do the R&D themselves. And they are after everything they can get their hands on. It doesn't have to be military technology. If it's more advanced than what they have, they go after it. It might be industrial technology. It might be civilian aviation. It might be medical technology. It might be agricultural technology. Their appetites are voracious. And they are very, very successful. But, of course, the number one target is going to be anything that's going to strengthen the PLA, strengthen them militarily. You probably noticed, as I did, not all that long ago at a big airfare in Shanghai, the Chinese unveiled their new UAV, unmanned area vehicle. And those of us who've been around for a while looked at that Chinese UAV. That's the Predator. Mm -hmm. It was the spitting image of the U.S. Predator. So yeah, the, they, they what is it? The, the J twenty. It looks just very eerily similar to the F twenty two. You bet, absolutely. Yes. And and you mentioned, I mean, we're like they're the world leader when it comes to nanotechnology now, right? Because of a a a, a recruitment of a non Chinese American. Yes. Yes. Yeah, they're ahead of us. It shouldn't be that way. You know, we should be the world leader in all aspects of uh, nanotechnology or computer science. But for whatever reason, uh, they're beating us. Uh, their offensive cyber mm-hmm. is overwhelming our yeah. cyber defenses. Yeah. Um, and we gotta, we've got to put more resources into it. Uh, they, they are everywhere. They're in classified databases. Yeah. They are in all of our high-tech companies. Uh, they're in the national labs. Uh, they're in our electrical grid. You know, the deputy director of NSA testified to, before Congress that we know they're there. Right. We know they installed malware, right. which they can uh, activate at some point of their choosing in the future. We've got it. We know they're in the Internet. We know they're, we, they can bring that down, uh, presumably, at some point in the future. So you've got to put a lot more into cyber. I tell my students here at the Bush School, we're going into intelligence careers. If you want to have a successful intelligence career today, you need to develop expertise in one or more of the following fields. First of all, you've got to know China. You've got to know how the Chinese intelligence services operate. Secondly, you've got to have a grounding in financial intelligence. Because if you can get into their money flows, you can bring them down. So financial intelligence is a rapidly growing area. And then, of course, the third area is cyber. You've got to develop expertise in in cyber uh, technology. So our students are doing that. And uh, they're not going to be the programmers themselves. Yeah. But they're going to be managers. Right. They're going to be the policy people who understand what the threat is and understand how to dedicate the appropriate resources to it. No, it, it's it's truly terrifying because not only from a military aspect in terms of military power that we've done all the research and that now and they have all our technology, but but they essentially have the off switch to to everything basically. They're in all of our companies and and into the site into the systems that there's really n- almost no way to get them out. Right. 
You know what the one of the major venues of Chinese espionage in the United States is, Dave? What's that? It's the college campus. Yeah. The United States college campus. They are going after the, our professors, and they are putting their students in place. The Thousand Talents program is insidious. Um, Charles Lieber is a great example of that. How they were able to insinuate themselves into a very sensitive area and to recruit him. It was very lucrative for him, but he had to conceal the extent that he was cooperating with the Chinese, uh, setting up a laboratory for them. Uh, Thank goodness we got him. But uh, Charles Lieber, I think, is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And the Chinese are are going after, are targeting a lot of professors on college campuses across the United States as we speak. And and that's not just with, with like a, a, a the technical uh, espionage, but that's also, I feel, fomenting, not necessarily like a cultural war, but, but definitely trying to play both sides against each other, trying to, because they, they have been, they've been, well, them and the Russians also, but they've been like throwing both the left and the right, these fake bones to get everybody riled up. Correct. That's correct. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, that's a standard ploy that they, that they utilize. Yeah. In my home state of Iowa, this was brought home not too long ago when Chinese were actually caught out in a cornfield in the middle of Iowa, digging up hybrid corn seeds because right. those hybrids were more advanced, had better yield than anything the Chinese were doing. And so they were stealing our, our seed right from the field to send back to China so that they could grow it and replicate it. Um, they are absolutely shameless what they go after. So the United States, to its credit, shut down the Chinese consulate in Houston, just next door to where I am. Because we knew that the Chinese intelligence services in Houston were having a field day uh, going after NASA, going after oil and gas, going after uh, MD Anderson for uh, medical technology. So we shut them down. And uh, that was a wake-up call, and I'm certainly glad we did that. Jim, in your experience, with your background and, and what you see now, and, and obviously teaching you always learn, but during the Cold War, would we have taken like a Russian teenager or Russian adult and put them in one of our national laboratories? I don't think we would have, uh, Dave. I don't think that was part of our uh, philosophy of operating. You know, we call young people like that futures. The other hand, the Chinese and the Russians have been very effective at recruiting futures. Uh-huh. They will recruit a young American who doesn't have any current access. And they will direct that person and compensate that person and hope that that person can eventually maneuver himself or herself into a position of access. You know, Glenn Duffy Shriver is a good example of that. He was recruited as a student with no access. They paid him a lot of money to go back to the United States and to apply for the State Department or for the CIA mm-hmm. to become an asset for Chinese intelligence. Uh, the Russians have done the same thing. You know, they, they recruit young Americans who don't have access, students, for example. They say, get back and uh, study Russian and apply for a government job 
And when you're there, then we will compensate you royally. And they established that relationship early on. They groom these people. Uh, we don't do that. Uh, we don't recruit uh, futures. We don't recruit young people uh, who uh, we hope can be steered into future positions of access. We want people who have access now. Right. Do you think that that is for ethical reasons or do you think that America in general and particularly in our government where everything flips so often, we just don't have the long view of intelligence that other countries do? Yeah, there may be a little bit of that, but I think we've just decided that it's not efficient. Yeah. It's not uh, cost effective because most of these young people, even with guidance, are not going to successfully end up in a position of access or stay loyal to their their intelligence sponsors. So we've decided that we've got better things to go after, um, more likely to be productive for us, than to waste time and energy on uh, a young person who's who's only a future. Jim, uh, for the, the, the public out there watching this, I was wondering if you could recommend some literature on Chinese espionage. Like, who, who do you like that's out there? Uh, Matthew Brazil or Michael Pillsbury? Or, are there some, some experts that you would uh, recommend people read? I definitely recommend Pillsbury. Uh-huh. I, I think, uh, I think uh, what he wrote is brilliant. Uh, and more specifically on Chinese espionage, I think the the best book that you can read is uh, one on uh, the Larry Wutai Chin case. I think that's very instructive. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll think some more. Maybe you can post it on your website. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, I'm just curious because it, it is a very dense subject, and it's something that, as you point out, a lot of people out there should probably get smart on. With, I think at, uh, they might with, want to read To Catch a Spy. Yes, with because you have to read. The first chapter is on China and some yeah. of the case studies. And it's some case studies. Yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I'll uh, like just. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. I mean, there's just kind of a quick list. I don't know if you guys can see that or not highlighted, but just a quick list of the some of the names. But but the Chinese have just been destroying us at this, and yeah. and they're almost untouchable. And you know, especially in our country where we we do want to be fair, and we don't want to you know have the appearance of profiling. Yeah. How do you go after an, an enemy? That is eth- that is ethnically different. I, I, and I would, I would take it a step further than that even, Dave. The Chinese government knows oh, this sure. is a pressure point and they that play they it. can come after and, us and say, 
you, America, you're racist right, right. for going after our spies. Right. And, and we feel bad about that. Right. Oh. Yeah. Well, let me, for what it's worth, tell you uh, Jim Olson's recipe for Please. Yeah. improving our counterintelligence against the Chinese. Sounds yeah. great. First of all, we, we've got to upgrade our cyber defenses because they're hacking at will now. And we've got we've got to stop that. Secondly, we've got to find ways to penetrate the intelligence services. We should be recruiting Chinese intelligence officers. The best counterintelligence is penetration. So we need to reach out to more Chinese intelligence officers, particularly the ones who are accessible to us here in the United States. Mm. Go after them very, very aggressively. Get in their face. Uh, let them know that we are open for business. We've got deep pockets and we can make a deal. Hang out the shingle. Let them know that uh, we are very eager to, to recruit them. And then the next thing we need to do is double agent operations. Uh, that's the second prong of being offensive, which is one of my counterintelligence uh, uh, commandments. We should be absolutely flooding the Chinese with double agents. If anybody's interested, uh, you might want to look at the uh, Yanjung Shu case out of Cincinnati because that was a brilliant FBI double agent operation against an MSS officer. And uh, this person was convicted. It's the first time that we've ever been able to convict a serving MSS staff officer. Mm -hmm. So it was groundbreaking. And what the FBI did in that case was a textbook, a double agent operation, brilliantly conceived and executed. So I would recommend that anybody's interested might want to look into that case. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, you, you like you mentioned the uh, the China initiative and it being shut down by the DOJ. And a lot of a lot of the reason was because it it looked bad. Right. It looked yeah. bad targeting Chinese, you know, yeah. Americans or Chinese naturalized, you know, Chinese, you know, Americans, yeah. you know, um, and it's it's kind of like, well, it's hard not to look bad. Sure. Yeah, it, it does make counterintelligence sense. I, I remember going out and briefing some of our high-tech partners for the CIA, corporate America, uh, invaluable contributions to the intelligence community. And I was briefing them on the Chinese counterintelligence threat. And I looked at this one company and the hundreds of ethnic Chinese engineers that they had. And I said, I'm going to ask a very politically incorrect question. What do you do to monitor those ethnic Chinese, because you know they're being targeted. Mm -hmm. And this chief of security out there, a friend of mine, former CIA a counterintelligence officer, said, Jim, I know exactly what you're saying, but what would you have us do? We need engineers. And when we go to the best American universities looking for engineers, what do we find? We find ethnic Chinese. Mm -hmm. So there's no choice. And I said to him, well, all right. How many of the ethnic Chinese working at your company who have access to our programs, clearances to our sensitive programs, CIA programs, or other DOD programs were born on the mainland? He said about half. So I said, you know, what are we going to do? That is a counterintelligence nightmare. Right. But he said, we are very limited in what we can do because it would be dismissed as racial profiling. Now, don't get me started on Winholi. 
you know, Wynn O'Lee actually graduated from Texas A&M. And he's never been convicted of anything, so I'm not saying anything. Mm-hmm. But when Wynn O'Lee was subject to prosecution, as soon as he raised the racial profiling card, he was home free. Right. He was home free. And he was never prosecuted. He actually sued the United States government for racial profiling. Right. It's uh yeah it it's it's scary um it, it's frustrating because it's almost like what's the point because we're not going to do anything about it I mean and I know that our our CIA uh, counterintelligence people our FBI counterintelligence I know they are working as hard as they can they they must be completely frustrated in these situations. well it's the same thing on the on the cyber warfare or or cyber intelligence even uh, aspect of it that the Chinese have consistently penetrated our systems they've hacked our systems. And through yeah. through experience, they have shown, they have tested us, and we have demonstrated back to them that we won't do a damn thing in retaliation, mm-hmm. that they can just take, they can steal all of our data, they can hack into all of our systems, and we won't do sure. shit about it. Sure. Yeah, that's true. It's so very one-sided. You know, they've got a large intelligence presence in the United States with the United Nations, with the embassy, with the consulates. Uh, we are very limited and the number of people that we CIA can get into China. And even when they get there, if you think it was hard to operate in Moscow during the Cold War when I was there with the suffocating surveillance we were all under, think about how it would be to operate in downtown Beijing today or any city in China with the unlimited resources they throw against us, with cameras everywhere, with sensors, with drones, with observation posts, uh, it's a counterintelligence challenge, uh, unlike anything we faced before. Right. Now that doesn't mean we can't do it, and I would hope and believe that we are doing it. But it's never been harder, so they uh, make it very make life very difficult for us to operate back there. Whereas in the United States, they have uh, uh, pretty much carte blanche. Uh, the the FBI, as good as they are, as committed as they are as professional as they are, honestly, are overwhelmed by the number of Chinese cases that are coming their way. Christopher Wray has been very outspoken in pointing that out, that the the Chinese are killing us, Yeah, that they are the number one threat. Yeah. Uh, Jim, real quick, uh, to kind of get back to the book a little bit, because I want to give people a little insight into into the delicious treat that they will be getting when they do order this book and read it. Um, you have the 10 commandments of counterintelligence. Yes. Um, and, and what I really like about that is because you state what, what it is, you give a description of it and then, um, and then you uh, sort of show how that, how that plays out. Can you, well, let me get to it real quick. Can you tell us what they are? are uh um so commandment number one uh be offensive yes yeah the ten commandments of counterintelligence the result of uh, my years of experience in counterintelligence and i learned some things i think that i wanted to share with other counterintelligence professionals maybe even future counterintelligence professionals ways that i think we can do our job better and the first commandment may be the most important I've referred to it already, that is, be offensive. U.S. counterintelligence is too passive. It's too defensive. 
You know, we're sitting back, we're hunkering down, we're looking for things to come our way. We've got to do a better job than that. We've got to take the action to them. We've got to hit them hard. And we're going to do that, I believe, through um, a better effort of recruiting their intelligence officers and also by sending double agents their way. So that's the two prongs that I was referring to, penetrations and double agent operations. If we do a better job of offensive counterintelligence against the Chinese, we can tilt the scale back in our favor. Uh, Commandment two, honor your professionals. Honor our professionals is very important. We talked about this also. Uh, We counterintelligence professionals have not been respected. We've not been treated as uh, the full professional uh, colleagues that we should be. Uh, We're inconvenient. We're unpopular. Right. You know, I refer to counterintelligence professionals as the skunk at the garden party. Right. When we show up, it's not pleasant. We don't bring good news. Right. Because our job is to point out what the threats are and uh, how you're vulnerable and how your operations may be flawed. Uh, they don't want to hear that. Right. So uh, we've got to treat our, our counterintelligence people better. We've got to recruit them uh, from the top ranks of the of the, uh, the different agencies. We've got to promote them. We've got to recognize them. We've got to give them awards. Uh, we've got to appreciate what they do. Uh, they basically are an underappreciated uh, professional category, and that needs to change. This is an adult show. You can say that they get shat upon. <laughs> we like, um, yeah, and and you know, I mean, honestly, reading this, and I'll tell you, like, reading this made me realize, like, I I've never not you know not respected somebody because they're in counterintelligence, but it, it this book gave me a true appreciation for what that is because. I can see where people might accuse you of being chicken little, but, but the thing is, is that all the cases in here had indicators that were ignored. Sure. Yeah. And uh, you need good counterintelligence professionals to be on the job and to pick up on those indicators. Uh, And uh, quite too often these cases, these indicators have been missed. Yeah. When you go back, Dave and Jack, and look at all the cases that we know about, all the Americans who have betrayed us. When you do the damage assessment, and you go back and talk to people, in every case I can think of, people saw something. They saw anomalies. They saw things that were questionable in the behavior, the attitude changes, the lifestyles, the finances of these people. But they didn't speak up. Or those signs were missed because there weren't counterintelligence security people there to see what was going on. So, yeah, we need to do a much better job of that. That's been a, a recurring problem. I, I actually, and, and one of the things that you're, that you're, you know, like you're reflective about and forthright in this book is that you said that even I'm guilty of that because you happen to be friends with a relatively famous person, uh, Mr. Ames. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a painful topic because... Uh, I didn't live up to my responsibility sufficiently, and I will take full blame for that. I've known Rick since 1976. I knew he was a substandard performer. I knew he was abusing alcohol. 
I should have gone to security early on. I said, listen, there may not be anything to it, but I've got concerns about the suitability of this officer. But I didn't do it. And you know why I didn't do it? Because it was countercultural for us to rat out a colleague. Mm -hmm. And you'll see that in any close-knit group. You both saw it in your careers. Mm -hmm. You don't want to make life difficult for a colleague and friend. Mm -hmm. They're one of us. Mm -hmm. You just don't call them out on it. Uh, And that's a mistake. We got to change that culture. We got to make it acceptable to go forward when we see something. But it's a tough nut to crack because we are close knit. Uh, We are bonded as colleagues. When you share a mission, when you share some risk in your careers, and you both know as well as I do what I'm talking about, you have a special closeness that you feel with these people who worked and risked their lives beside you. You're not going to go forward when you see something wrong. Yeah. It's just a fact. I think we also have a tendency to make excuses for people that we are close to. We don't see it in the same light that we would yes. if it were somebody yeah, we didn't he, know. he has a drinking problem, but he's a good dude. He's a good dude. Yeah. I mean, but, yeah. but and we, I mean, we do this with family. We do this for friends. We do it with yeah. people that we're close to. We, it's sure. a natural human tendency to make excuses for them. It's so easy to do, isn't it? Yeah. To rationalize those yeah. concerns away. Yeah. And also you can tell yourself, you know, it's not my job. Yeah. It's not my job to to react to these these telltale signs that I've seen. Well, it is your job. Right. I think anybody who has classified access in the United States government has a responsibility to, to come forward when they see something. Right. But that's a work in progress. Uh, DIA, I think, uh, leads the pack. Uh, they have training programs for their people where they – acquaint them to uh, how to report something when they see it and it's paid off you can even do it anonymously if you want we can protect your anonymity right but people have gone to the security and counterintelligence people at di dia and they have enabled them to start investigations anna montez is a perfect case in point it was an alert co-worker who said, you know, something just doesn't smell right about Anna. And I'm going to go to the counterintelligence people and just make my instinctive reaction to her known to them and put it in the hands of the professionals. Right. Let them move forward. And they can do it discreetly. They can protect her long-term professional equities if she's innocent. But she wasn't. Right. She's been a spy for the Cubans for years. Right. And thank goodness that person came forward because Anna Montez would probably be retiring about now with all kinds of medals and awards and have been working for the China, for the Cubans all those years. Right. And I not having been caught. So. And and it's not as if her coworker was the she was Montana she she was not shy about her anti-American pro-Cuban views which she, she would, was she was blatant about it. Uh, and uh, people knew it, uh, but nobody really went to the right people right. to express those concerns. 
And then again, uh, you know, we are people that uh, have freedom of speech. Right. You just work for the government. You, know, you can have a difference of opinion with our government on a given country. Uh, and so she was not alone in expressing some th- sympathy for the Cuban revolution and the Cuban people. Right. There were a lot of people in our own government who were soft on Cuba. Right. Um, so that in itself would not have been disqualifying or grounds for uh, dismissal, but it should have prompted a closer look. Right. Thank goodness that's what happened. We have uh, a few viewer questions I'd love to get into, but before that, there's something I really I got to ask you since we have you here is about this theory out there about the so-called fourth man, that there were these three traitors, uh, Edward Lee Howard, Aldrich Ames, and Robert Hansen at FBI. There's this theory out there that there was a fourth unidentified mole at CIA, and you are the, you are the subject matter expert, so I would really love to hear your thoughts. You got Robert Bear's, Bob Bear's book there. Yeah, Bob Bear's book is on my desk, and I talk to Bob Bear a lot about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned in the book a couple times. Um, I'm a believer. You're I, a believer. I've, I've, I've come to believe that there is a fourth man mm-hmm. uh, who has not been uncovered yet. And Bob Bear points his finger pretty squarely uh, at, 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 a, at a, a suspect. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm glad Bob wrote that book. Uh, it took a lot of research on his part. Uh, you probably know Bob. He comes from similar backgrounds to, to the two of you. Uh, he is a bulldog. He is tough, ruthless. When he's got a hold of something, he's not going to let it go. And way back, long time ago, he talked to me about his fourth man theory. And I listened uh respectfully, patiently. Uh, Milt Bearden, in his book, The Main Enemy, also raised the the prospect of a fourth man. In other words, if you look at Ames, if you look at Edward E. Howard, if you look at Jim Nicholson, all of whom betrayed us from within the CIA, there are things that we lost, assets that we lost, that cannot be attributed to any of them. Mm-hmm. So who did it? And I believe it was the fourth man. Uh, I would like nothing better to see the fourth man brought to justice. Uh, there's no statute of limitations in my mind for someone who betrays our country. Yeah. And we will have Milton uh, this summer. Uh, we'll be able to discuss that with him a little bit. Oh, Mel Bearden? Yes. Oh, he's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he'll be a great interview. Huh. Yeah. And he, uh, he, Mel and I have talked about uh, Bear's book and about the fourth man theory. Uh, and he's a, he's a, a very interesting person and uh, very knowledgeable uh, and a great interview. He's, he's very, uh, very colorful and outspoken. So and I think the world, I think the world of Mel, a real pro. We work very closely together. I'm going to uh, get through some. uh, Some of our viewers have questions. I'll try to get through here. Uh, KJAM asks, while serving in the Soviet Union, was the CIA primarily focused on developing assets or were they also monitoring ideologues or opportunists in positions of authority, perhaps like Putin as well? 
No, the reality of our presence in Moscow was that we could not do active recruitment operations there. We were so covered by the KGB that we could not have any meaningful contact, uh, even assessment contact with targets there. Mm -hmm. We were dependent on the people who were recruited outside Russia, Mm -hmm. Russian intelligence officers, Russian diplomats, other Russians who we could get our hands on outside the country where we had access and then prepare them, train them to send them back to Moscow. So our job was not to do the classic recruitment cycle. We couldn't really do that in Moscow, but to handle the recruited sources, uh, including people who have been recruited outside. Now, that is not 100% accurate because there were some people who were able to make contact with us inside Russia, inside Moscow, and that we were then able to recruit and handle. Uh, without that external component. Uh, one real good example of that is Adolf Tokachev, the billion-dollar spy. We didn't recruit him outside the country. Mm-hmm. He came to us in Moscow and volunteered his services. Uh, but that's that's really more of an exception than the rule. Yeah. Uh, Shamov, who I worked with personally, was someone who also who was not technically recruited outside Russia, although he did approach one of our people in another Eastern European country. But uh, he was basically an internal uh, volunteer. You know, and, and I don't think, like, sometimes it's hard to have an appreciation for what the, what, what's going on with these people when they do approach you, because if an American gets caught, they'll get arrested. In a lot of these countries, if they get caught, they're going to get executed. Yes. Yeah, the penalty for espionage in Russia is almost always uh, execution. Uh, Ames killed many, many Russians Yeah, by betraying their identity. Uh, I don't know how he can live with himself. He not only betrayed our country, but he's a murderer. Right. Uh, I feel the same way about Edward Lee Howard to a lesser extent. Uh, yeah, that's true. There's a, a disparity in the risks that we face, those people are risking their lives. And let me tell you what was so heartening for me as a CIA officer operating in Moscow, handling some of these people. Uh, So many of them came our way for ideological reasons. They were people who saw how the Russian system, Mm -hmm. the Soviet regime, was oppressing their own people, was denying their own people basic rights, was strangling their economy. And they wanted to strike back against that. And they courageously decided that one way that they could do that was by secretly working with the CIA. I have tremendous respect for those people. Some of the people I handled categorically refused to accept any money from us. Wow. Because that would taint the purity of their motivation. Mm-hmm. They were doing what they were doing because they loved Russia. They want to see Russia return to a dem- democratic process. They wanted the Russian people to be liberated from that terrible communist system that they were living under. Those people 
I respected tremendously. And to lose them was particularly painful uh, because they were doing what they were doing for a very, very noble reason. Right. Brad. I won't reject, I won't reject Russians who come to us because they want the money. Right. Uh, if they give us the intelligence, they earn it, and I'm happy to pay it to them. In fact, if you have a Russian who is venal, who wants to do espionage on our behalf for money, those are the, those are the easiest recruitment you ever make. Because if you can buy them, it's just a question of negotiating the price. Right. So those are easy. Uh, uh, and those those all aren't always nice people. Right. <laughs> they, they're, they're quite often fairly sleazy people. Uh, you deal with some people in this business that you would not want to befriend under any other circumstances. But we owe them respect because they're helping our country. Right. And even if their motive is uh, impure in our, in our eyes, uh, we're still going to protect it. We're still going to uh, appreciate what they do for us. Brad asks, "Is China, I think we've talked about this a bit, is China the new Russia, Cuba, in terms of how hard it is to collect human intelligence? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, squared. <laughs> uh, multiplied many times over. KJAM asks, uh, I remember watching former CIA agents in the 80s on Phil Donahue speaking out against covert ops, and I believe there were eventual changes at the CIA. Uh, was that important or still controversial? Um, maybe maybe he's referring to Iran-Contra, but I'm, I'm not sure uh, if what you think, Jim. Yeah, we had, particularly in the 80s, some turncoats, some people from inside who went rogue who denounced what we were doing. Uh, Philip Agee is a good example of that. Uh, I regret that. Uh, they reacted to some of the legitimate abuses that we've been uh, involved in. Iran-Contra alienated a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, some of our patronage of right-wing dictators. Uh, some of the things that we did uh, that raised ethical issues that I point out in my first book, Fair Play, uh, turned some people against us, couldn't accept what we were doing. Uh, but they had no right to speak up, to betray secrets, to reveal our operations. So I have contempt for those people. I, I hate leakers of any kind uh, because there are channels uh, where they can express their dissent, but they cannot take it upon themselves to betray our personnel and our operations. Uh, AG betrayed every CIA case officer he knew about, uh. ruining careers, putting them in danger. Uh, there's no excuse for that. Jim Nicholson did the same thing. Mahal. He was on the he was on the faculty down at the farm, so he knew the identity of all of our junior case officers being trained down there. Right. So he was compromising their covers even before they got to the field. Right. He compromised like like a year's worth of agents, right? He did. Despicable. Yeah. Uh, Jim Nicholson is one of my case studies, uh, but he's beneath contempt in my eyes. And then there was also the, uh, was it the chief of station who was killed in Athens after his identity was leaked by? Yeah, that's uh, Welch. Uh, yeah. After he was outed in Agee's book, uh, a short time later, he was killed by terrorists on the streets of Athens. Mm -hmm. And I put that, I put that to the discredit of, uh, 
of uh, of AG. So yeah, it's horrible. Uh, uh, James, President Bush was uh, very aware of that operation, uh, and when he lectured in my classes at the Bush School, he always brought that case up. Yeah, and he always teared up because uh, he felt deeply the loss of CI officers who fell in the line of duty, like was particularly those who were killed because of traitor traitors right. like 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 AG. Uh, Muhammad says, I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Olson at WTAMU. Uh, absolutely life-changing. A question, if I could, reading Unrestricted Warfare by China's uh, intelligence and the NotPetya Russian, Russian hack. How do we develop cybersecurity offensive talent here in America? I think we've got the uh, raw material. I mean, so many young Americans are very skilled at computers. Um, so I think we need to go out and recruit the, the brightest uh, from that crowd that we can and find young men and women who have a particular talent for cyber, you know, with computer science degrees, uh, who have shown a knack for hacking in their own right. Right. Uh, sign them up and subject them to a really intense training program. Yeah. Uh, Make them world class hackers, you know. Uh, I want I want us to be more offensive against the Chinese than they are against us. Yeah, we're not even close. You know, it, it's interesting because when you look at like these ransomware gangs in Russia, like Conti and Ryuk, and then you look at the Chinese. Well, the Chinese hackers are 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 a lot of those persistent threats are part of the Chinese government, even though they say they're not, but it's almost like America sort of needs to kind of let the gloves off and go back to the idea of privateers with, you know, in, in the sense of, you know, these, these kids get arrested when they hack, when they hack anything, it's like, let them form their own groups and do whatever they want against Russia and China, as long as it doesn't, you know, because that's yeah. what, with these ransomware groups, they're not allowed to touch anything in Russia or part of the Russian Federation. You know, they're not allowed to do that, but it's hands off legal wise, as long as they're, you know, operating against, you know, other nations. I like that. You're thinking like a CI officer, Dave, and I hope the right people are listening and it can implement some of that. I do that's, too. A, that's a good approach. I mean, it's a good approach. We had privateers before, right? I mean, it wouldn't be bad. Yeah. Use letters of Mark. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Andrew uh, says on a letter note, uh, he's asking you, uh, Jim, did he ever get to meet the guy in the CIA who decided to put a microphone inside a cat, the so-called acoustic kitty? <laughs> I'm very familiar with that operation. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant for your your audience that's not familiar with acoustic kitty. Uh, we know that uh, from surveillance, from observation, that this high-priority target group uh, quite often met in a conference room and we could see through the window, and uh, we saw that they had a pet cat that quite often was in the room when these prob probably sensitive conversations was going on. And so the CIA kidnapped the cat. <laughs> Catnapped. We catnapped the cat <laughs> and, and performed a uh, 
a, an operation to insert a listening device into the cat underneath the fur so it wouldn't be detected. And uh, uh, Acoustic Kitty uh, sitting in on those meetings uh, could uh, broadcast to our listening post outside what was going on. I like I like the creativity of did, did it actually work, Jim? Can't comment on that. Uh, Bob Gates talks about it a lot, and uh, he hints that there was a payoff. Really, it's amazing because I mean the story. I think that like if you if you Google this and try to read what's on like Wikipedia, the story is like they did a test run. And the cat immediately just wandered out of the park into the road and was hit by a car. And that was kind of like the, <laughs> the, the end of it. Yeah. Um, well, that's possible. But I can say that uh, the concept of the operation, some of the implication was not apocryphal. So, there's, there, so there, is a, uh, there, there is a bit there's more. A kernel, there's a kernel of truth and maybe more than a kernel. A bit, a bit more to the story. <laughs> uh, we missed one of Andrew's uh, questions. To what extent might have Angleton uh, been grasping after the signs that the Walker ring had been had, had compromised U.S. communications? Yeah, well, uh, Walker was doing his dirty when uh, Angleton was uh, riding supreme at the agency. Uh, Walker's another great example of someone who should have been caught a lot earlier. He was uh, very flamboyantly showing off his unexplainable wealth. Uh, he was recruiting subordinates, recruited his own family. His estranged wife actually came forward at some point to denounce him, but she was dismissed as uh, an alcoholic, uh, embittered spouse, ex-spouse, not taken seriously. So he got away with her for a lot longer than he should have. And I'll put that... I'll put that on Angleton's doorstep. Yeah. If our counterintelligence had been better, uh, I, I think we might have done a better job of, of detecting uh, Walker a lot earlier, Johnny Walker. Uh, he did a lot of damage. I was in the Navy myself. Uh, and I'm familiar with the KW-7, the KW-26. And for him to give them the key list uh, for our coding machines uh, was would have been devastating. Yeah. Because it allowed, and Ole Kalugan makes a point of this. Ole Kalugan handled Walker. And he said, during that period, that lengthy period, thanks to Johnny Walker, the KGB could uh, decrypt all of the encrypted uh, communications of the United States Navy uh, during those years. Uh, last question here. My peers, uh, early 20s, uh, I guess my peers in their early 20s, are inundated with ideology, critique of the Chinese state uh, with buzzwords like racism or imperialism. How do you approach young people about this issue pragmatically? Yeah, you know, it's, it's not that hard, Jack. Of course, I'm in a privileged position here because we select our students at the uh, Bush School so carefully. They are highly motivated, very patriotic, very idealistic. So that's not a, a good cross-section. But there are a lot of young people out there who are thinking straight, who don't buy any of this uh, ideological indoctrination, who love our country, who want to serve our country. And so they should step forward. They should not be deterred by any of that. And they should not uh, allow themselves to be brainwashed. And they should find a way to uh, prepare themselves for a very meaningful career. 
And I hope some of those people listening will uh, pursue this call to serve our country because uh, it is indescribably rewarding to be able to to serve our country. Uh, You both did that in your way. I I had the honor of doing that myself. Uh, You know, it's not all about money. It's not all about power. It's not all about prestige and status. Uh, There are a lot more important things in life. And what could be more honorable, more meaningful at the end of the day than serving our country? Uh, So I, I urge young people to take a really good look at the military, at law enforcement, and in my case, specifically the intelligence community, and find your niche. Find a way to, to become involved. Uh, we're all hiring, uh, and you'll never regret it. Uh, you go home at night feeling good about what you did. Not everybody can say that. Now, I've got nothing against corporate America. Our country needs uh, good corporate executives. Our economy needs good corporate executives. But for me and for most of the students that I deal with, a career in corporate America would never be fulfilling. You would not be serving something you truly believe in. You're not making a difference in an area that you care about. So I think all of us who were there, and you can uh, confirm this in your own careers, uh, feel privileged to have had the opportunity to serve the way we did. Yeah. So I hope there are some young people out there. Um, I hope they'll look at uh, graduate programs or uh, service in the military, service in law enforcement at any level. Um, I'll put in a pitch by May for mm-hmm. the Bush School at Texas a University because we are designed specifically to prepare high-quality young men and women for uh, meaningful careers in the United States intelligence community. We do other things here too, diplomacy, law enforcement, international organizations. But our intelligence studies program is uh, something we're very proud of. Uh, I have one one final question, and, and we'll, I promise we'll wrap things up, Jim. Uh, Isaac asks, has there been any more proof of Russian interference of the 2016 election? Is there anything that could have been done to prevent it or at least lessen the damage? Yeah, I don't think that uh, I've ever seen any convincing evidence that it was particularly meaningful, uh, significant. I don't think it changed uh, any votes. Sure, they were playing around with some of those websites, uh, some of that social media. Uh, they were tinkering with it, but I don't think it had any real impact. And I, I've never seen any real evidence that there was this monster plot to steer the election one way or the other. I think a lot of that was concocted. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, something that was totally inappropriate, verging on illegal to have uh, fabricated, if it was fabricated, some of that, uh, most, some of the most lurid accusations against, uh, against Russia. Now, I don't put anything past Putin. Uh, Putin is someone I've followed since the 1980s, and I know what he's capable of. He is a vicious man with no scruples whatsoever. You just look at what he's doing in, in Ukraine now. It's uh, unspeakably uh, cruel. Uh, but uh, no, I don't think he, he had any kind of a massive uh, in ro- role in our elections. Certainly hope not. Yeah. yeah, the Iranians were also trying to influence that. They didn't make much headway either, correct? No. 
No, our system, I think, is uh, is good. I think it's it's basically secure. Uh, we can always tighten it up. We can do what we can to prevent any kind of fraud, uh, cheating in the elections. That's not American, but uh, I believe in our democracy. I believe in our institutions. And I think that uh, our elections are, are basically secure and that uh, we do a pretty good job of policing them. Uh, we can always do better. Uh, we have to close some loopholes, perhaps, but uh, it's not a, a massive uh, violation of our democratic principles, what we've seen here so far. That's my opinion. Uh, Scott, also, do we have another on Patreon? Uh, <coughs> Let's see here. Uh, Scott. Um, oh, okay. Last one for real this time, I promise. How did your, nice. law, de- how, how did your law degree impact your, uh, your decision-making during your CIA career? That's a good question. I never really used my legal experience on the job. I was not recruited by the CIA as a lawyer. But in my training class at 25 down at the farm, eight of us had law degrees. And that meant that the CIA recognized the value of the legal training that we received. And I did not specifically apply my knowledge of the law, but things I learned at law school, I think were valuable to me. The critical thinking, the ability to sort through a lot of data and extract what was relevant. The advocacy skills, I think were things that I could use. So I didn't end up practicing law as I had originally intended, but I don't regret having gone to law school. I'll tell young people today that if you want a career in intelligence, law school is not the best path to get there because you do a lot of coursework that's totally irrelevant. Now there are graduate programs that are much more designed to prepare you specifically for a career in national security. Uh, That's the direction I would go. They didn't really exist in my day. Uh, But when I went to law school, I wasn't thinking national security. I was thinking serving my community as a small town lawyer. Uh, If uh, CIA had not come calling, uh, I'd probably be practicing law in Clinton, Iowa today (laughs) because they were making the best offer. It would have been a good life. And I was heading to Clinton because they offered me a paid membership in the Clinton Country Club <laughs> if I went to Clinton. <laughs> a nice little uh, county seat town on the Mississippi River. Uh, it would have been nice. I could have had a good life. So, but uh, I certainly don't, uh, would never trade places with my law school colleagues who went into the practice of law. Uh, I'm sure it was fine for them. It's very important, but... Uh, what I did uh, was uh, far, far above and beyond what I ever would have dreamed. I, I love the CIA. Yeah. But I will say that as, as rewarding as the CIA career was, I think what I'm doing now in working with the next generation of intelligence officers, next generation of spy catchers, next generation of FBI special agents is even more meaningful. I told Meredith the other day that I think what we are doing here has more long-term impact for our country than our service in the CIA. I'm very sincere about that. Uh, can't I, give you any numbers, but... Uh, no, I, I, I agree. Bush yeah. School, I wanna, Bush School 
Bush School is doing its part in sending uh, young men and women in the intelligence community. Joe, I want to, I want to, if you don't mind, I know we've kept you really long, but I would like to end this interview with one quick story from your book, if you would, because, you know, you paint this picture of Angleton and what he did to counterintelligence at the time where he had all these kind of weird theories and stuff like that. And that that environment was kind of filtering down. Can you tell us about the counterintelligence officer that, that worked in the vault? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good case because it's illustrative of uh, what happened to people. You know, one of my Ten Commandments of Counterintelligence, don't stay too long. Because if you live constantly in that world of illusion, deception, manipulation, conspiracy, doublethink, it can play tricks on your mind. That's what happened to Angleton. In 20 years, he lost touch with reality. He went off the deep end. And this person that we're talking about was one of what uh, we call the fundamentalists. They were, they were the true believers. They were the people who surrounded Angleton and who were like-minded. They'd been infected by the same disease of uh, conspiracy and... Uh, a double think. And this person, I used to see him go through this big vault door in the morning and look around, make certain no one's watching, and then spin the dial and then pull this big vault door open and disappear inside, clank. And I'm thinking to myself, what are they doing in there? What's he doing in there? How do they even breathe in <laughs> And what I know now, what he was doing was his life's work. He was doing endless research, counterintelligence probing to prove that Angleton was the mole, <laughs> that Angleton was the traitor, which was crazy, uh, totally irresponsible, uh, unwarranted, unjustified. Angleton did a lot of damage to the CIA, but he was no Russian mold. But anyway, that was the when, conclusion of this. When I read this. that, I imagined him in his vault with like strings and paper, paper yarn, and, you know, yeah. all yeah. the dots connected. Because you said like he presented like a 25-point summary of his, oh, of yeah. his conclusions. Was, he, he produced his opus, the CIA opus, that actually went up to the seventh floor with his proof that Angleton is the traitor. And of course it was dismissed for the, the ludicrous uh, proposition that it was, but he believed it. Uh, Incredible. And there were people among the fundamentalists who believed the craziest things. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to give the FBI a pass either <laughs> because that same mindset was true with J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, so all those years we had James Jesus Angleton writing Supreme at the CIA and Angleton or and, and Hoover over at the uh, FBI with the same kind of uh, totally out of touch reality. Yeah, en entrenched bureaucrats with a conspiratorial worldview. Very dangerous. Right. 
And the disservice they did to our country cannot be exaggerated. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we suffered as a country because of their narrowness, their inability to see the real threats and to do something about the real threats. Yeah. So, folks, I hope you'll go out and check, it, uh, check out the books To Catch a Spy and Fair Play by our guest here tonight, Jim Olson, former CIA head of counterintelligence. We really appreciate your time, Jim. This has been an awesome interview. Yeah, we, we deeply – everybody buy this thank first. Uh, Scott, uh, I know thank, you asked – Thank you, Jack. I, oh, sorry. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. Uh, go, we need to – Recruit some people to go out and catch some more spies for us. That's right. Hey, Scott, we know you asked a question. Sorry, we, do, we don't want to keep them anymore. But the answer to your question about the indicators are in this. <laughs> they're in the book. I, I'm telling you, folks, read this book. It will open your eyes. It's, it's truly much. amazing. And next week, next Friday, we'll be here with former Delta Force operator Dale Comstock. So, I'll be uh, listening. It's going to be, be a good one. going to be a really you, good Jim. one. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Have a good night. Me too. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.